Hello, I'm Lisa McCoy, and welcome to It's Not Always Special, a podcast about the special needs child and for people who don't know anyone with special needs. Because when we know better, we do better. And I truly feel that as a society, we aren't doing very well when it comes to interacting with and taking care of people with special needs. I'm the mom of a 28-year-old daughter with Down syndrome and autism. She has a twin brother and a younger sister. In this podcast, we'll talk to siblings of those with special needs, learn about new technologies and treatments, investigate best places to live if you have a child with special needs, and open up about marriages that don't survive having a child with challenges. We'll tackle anything else that comes down our path. I hope you'll listen in, hit subscribe, and most importantly, please share us with a friend. We'll be back with today's episode right after this. On today's podcast, we're talking with Melissa Mazeda, who's a support coordinator in South Florida. In order to receive funding for support services, you must have a support coordinator. So it's essentially the foundation of the Medicaid waiver program. There is a shortage of coordinators in most of the state, and there are approximately 22,000 people currently waiting for a coordinator. We need help. Melissa owns her own business and is intimately familiar with the program. She will explain to us why coordinators are hard to come by and why we're in a crisis mode in the state of Florida. Cast Melissa, and uh, thank you for being with me today. Thank you. Um, Melissa Mazeda is, um, has her own agency, and she's been doing this forever and probably will till she dies. <laughs> um, she does what's called waiver support coordination. And so I guess in a nutshell, the easiest way to, to describe it is you uh, bridge individuals with special needs with the uh, Agency for Persons with Disabilities. And you put the person and the money together, basically. Yes. And yep. kind of find services for them. I guess that's the easiest way to describe it for people who don't know. Yeah, I would say that that's accurate. Uh, the Agency for Persons with Disabilities is responsible for determining if somebody has a developmental disability in order to be eligible for it. A developmental disability is uh, something that occurred prior to the age of 18. Uh, a lot of folks are born with a developmental disability, um, such as, as Down syndrome, Williams syndrome, cerebral palsy, autism, spina bifida, and then the big caveat, which is usually intellectual disability, which used to be referred to as mental retardation. We don't usually say mentally retarded anymore, but that is what an intellectual disability is. No, it could also be somebody who suffered a traumatic brain injury. That is correct. Somebody who might have been ill, high fever, something might have happened to them, and they suffered some kind of uh, a mental setback and now require services that they might not have needed prior to. That's correct. Okay. As long as it occurred prior to the age of 18. So there's a whole range of reasons mm -hmm. why this might happen to someone. So once APD determines that they're eligible, then um, the next process, at least in the state of Florida, in regards to getting services is to be enrolled on the iBudget Medicaid waiver program. That program draws down federal money, and the state of Florida puts up approximately forty-five percent, and then there, then the federal government matches it with you know fifty-five percent. 
and those dollars are what the support coordinator uses to help put the waiver services in place. And the waiver services are very specific. Uh, you know, the, they usually encompass um, what's called life skills development, which is, you know, meaningful day activity. So people can go to a day program and have something to do during the day rather than just sitting at home. Uh, transportation to and from their day program. Uh, if they need help at home with personal supports, uh, personal care, respite, uh, for families, if they need to live in a group home, uh, there's that service available as well. So there's a, a number of services on the waiver program, but the waiver is the payer of uh, last resort. We try to use, you know, person as Medicare first. Um, if uh, there's any community resources that we can tap into, we try to do, do those before we tap into waiver dollars, if at all possible. And the support coordinator also has to, um, you know, help guide with housing if they need it and no housing resources because the waiver doesn't pay for, you know, like rent and, and stuff like that, utilities. Um, so now my question is this, you, one of the, you have asked parents mm -hmm. to um, advocate, mm -hmm. <clears throat> reach out to legislators mm -hmm. for more money and more funding. Mm -hmm. So one of the things, um, and I, I've talked about this before, I moved from New York to Florida, and I'll tell you one of the reasons why we did that. I hate the cold, right. is one. <laughs> Number two, my husband and I, our children are grown, our parents are gone, and we don't have a lot of social activities in our lives because of our daughter. Mm -hmm. So here in Florida, we can, at least sit outside and be warm and comfortable and have an enjoyable afternoon. When you live in New York from the months of maybe May till September, you can't do that. It yeah, starts to get cold, okay? <laughs> so um, that's one of the reasons why. We knew that services for our daughter were not at the same level um, that they were in New York. We, we knew that. We picked the particular area of Florida that we're living in because of the services were a little bit better than other areas of Florida. And um, we still had to wait over two years to get her into even a program. Uh, it was over a year and we were private paying for a part-time program. Mm -hmm. And we still don't have any respite. So she's in a program and I, that allows me to work um, part-time behind a deli counter in a supermarket because they open uh, about the same time her program opens. It's close to her program, so I can drop her off, go to work, and pick her up, and they'll work with my schedule. Um, so, because she's done at 2 o'clock. Yeah, and unfortunately, you guys moved from, you know, a state that is very, um, they they put a lot of funding into people with developmental disabilities to a state that is at the bottom. The, the last uh, information that I've, I've seen in regards to where Florida puts the funding for our folks is at 49th. And, uh, you know, it's, it's our budget right now is uh, $2 billion for this program. And the when Jeb Bush was our uh, governor from 99 to 2007, 
he actually, his administration, over, over the course of his administration, he put in almost $1 billion into this program, basically from the, mm -hmm. you know, from the federal money as well. And, uh, you know, he, so he put in almost half of what our current budget is right now. The program has been in existence for 29 and a half years. It started uh, July 1st, 1993 was when it went live. And it was uh, a pilot program for you know five years. We knew that, that we were gonna be able to uh, draw down some federal money and state and uh, we had a handbook and we had to try to you know figure out the, the best course of action. But uh, the Agency for Persons with Disabilities at that time was actually a different an acronym, it was HRS. And then we went under DCF and then they broke uh, APD off into their own state agency. And that agency has had a lot of changes over the years that I've been able to witness. And it's, um, they've, they've, they've really changed how, how they really used to function in regards to provider development. Part of the biggest issue that we have with services down here, and yes, there's an issue with the funding. There is an issue with, if, if we wanna add more people onto this program, you have to put more money into it. But the current people that are on the program right now are uh, struggling because like you said, you can't even get respite or, or reliable personal supports to come in so that you're able to show up at your job when you need to. And you know, a, a day program is the next best thing for you to be able to work uh, you know, and have some sort of income. Into yeah, I mean, home. I'm not asking for Kelsey to go to a day program so I can go to the beach. I'm asking right. for her to go right. to a day program so I can go to a $16 an hour job mm -hmm. with a four-year degree. Now, you know, I'm old enough now where in the next few years I'm looking at retirement. It won't be a complete retirement because we can't afford it, frankly. But um, I'm look, and I can already feel it. It's a physical job that you start when you're 60 years old right. and it takes a toll on your body. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have to bathe her. I have to physically help her to get dressed. <clears throat> I don't think people understand that. We're not looking for health so we can go to the beach or, right. you know, go to the spa. We're looking for help to maintain the day-to-day. -day. And, you know, yes. and a quality of not just hiring people, but a, a quality person. Mm -hmm. There was recently an abuse case where someone got physical mm -hmm. with an individual in a group home. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are all kinds of issues. You can't, one, you can't hire. Two, you can't hire quality. Right. And the, it creates a whole host of issues. We didn't, for a long time, we really had a lot of, um, the APD did, a, a, I thought, a great job when it came to provider development and education and ongoing training and stuff like that, where they really helped people to understand our particular folks. You know, people with developmental disabilities uh, require, uh, you know, if you're dealing with somebody that has behaviors, um, they require patience and kindness and redirection and... Uh, there's no point in engaging, you know, in an argument or anything like that. Don't bother. There's just certain basic ground rules that I thought that the Agency for Persons with Disabilities did a great job on when they were doing that level of provider development. They have gotten away from that, unfortunately. And the support coordination aspect of it is when, when you are added to, in Florida, what's called the I-Budget Medicaid Waiver, and we draw down that federal money, when you get onto that program, you... Basically, you're still under the Agency for Persons with Disabilities, but 
that's the state agency. Now you get your case management services, if you will, through the waiver program. And that case manager under the iBudget waiver program in Florida is called a support coordinator. That's what I do. I have been Which, doing... by the way, I will tell you, <clears throat> I'm very fortunate to have found you, but I had to find you. <laughs> they give me a whole list of names and people, and I have to pick one. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know you. I'm new to the area, and I have to find a person on a, based on a list of what. So I consider myself lucky because, you know, we didn't know anybody. We didn't know a lot of people. How do you pick one? I, I, I mean, I think that's another flaw in the system. It it. It, it is. It definitely is. Uh, that That is uh, something that can be easily rectified. And I'm hoping with APD's new director that is effective this week, uh, APD director um, Taylor Hatch, I'm hoping that she's going to be, um, you know, very willing to have those kind of conversations about things like that that can be easily remedied and to, to make it much more simplistic and easy for the families to to, I've seen the selection list that's gone out. It's, it's you look crazy. at it and you go, what yeah. am I supposed to do with right. this? You know. So with the support coordinator, um, you know, there's folks that I work with that I have been serving since I was in my twenties because I started this job, you know, almost kind of right out of college in a way, and um, you know, I'm, I've outlived their parents, and you know, I'm still looking out for them, and we. We, you are able, one of the, the most important things as a support coordinator is to create stability, but to also be able to get to know that person and their family over time, build a trust. There's a, that's, the, I think, the, the, the main thing. And I, I look for that longevity with people that I hire to do this, that they are going to commit to this because it takes a while to, for people to trust you. You know, to, to trust, I'm going to look out for your daughter's best interest. Uh, trust me, when I visit her at the Haven, that I'm going to, you know, check in with her. I'm going to see how she's doing. I'm going to trust me. I'm going to talk to the the um, the instructors and see how it's going. And trust me that if something happens to you and she has to move out of her home for some reason, trust me that I'm going to help figure that situation out with your family. Uh, we, we have folks that are added to the program that don't have any family. They have nobody there except that support coordinator that then has to try to do the next best thing, which is put a paid family in place, if you will. We look for longevity in those providers. I have to kind of, in a way, convince providers, sell them on this person. Like, look, I know on paper, that you know this person requires a lot of um, you know help with behaviors and stuff, but they really just need to develop that relationship with you. Trust that you're gonna be there for them and not go anywhere. And then I'm telling you, it, things are gonna get better. The behaviors will go down. We gotta find meaning uh, or find 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 things that that person finds meaningful in their in their day to day existence, and that involves you know bringing other providers into the picture. But you have to, as a support coordinator, that takes years to develop. Or it, ta it takes time mm -hmm. to develop those skills to even become an effective support coordinator. I feel now I can kind of go into families' homes that are just getting on the waiver and really help to educate them on what to expect and what I'm going to do for them. But i got to be able to train other people to do that. And that takes years to develop. Mm -hmm. And 
but that's really important. The support coordinator is juggling uh, usually like 43 different folks um, on their caseload, which means... Which is know, unheard of, really. It's a lot. That's a lot. It is. It is a lot. And it's, you know, providers and families, if they have families. and um, So now these support coordinators, their current rate... Yeah. The current rate that they receive is from 1994. That's correct. That's the year my children were born. Mm-hmm. My Kelsey, yeah. who has mm-hmm. special needs, mm-hmm. was born in 1994. Mm-hmm. She turns 29 this year. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yes, there has been a 92.3% cost of living increase. It's actually, it's it's higher than that when that statistic was put on there. It's, it's double. It's about 100% difference uh, between then and now. And yes, the rate is from 1994. There was a Senate bill that was introduced um, and became effective July of 2021 that really did kind of change things with support coordination where, um, and, and I will say that I, I am in favor of that Senate bill. Um, it, what, it, what, it ha- what happened with it is that it required, <laughs> so before the Senate bill, people were actually, support coordinators were actually able to take about two weeks worth of training and some online trainings and then they would submit a packet of paperwork to the medic to Medicaid and that would come through about nine months later and they were able to provide support coordination services great and and it, it was not it was it is such a complex job absolutely there is no way that you can do this job without having somebody leading you and guiding you and, by the and hand take you by the hand and it takes years to develop but for the longest time they allowed that now there were wonderful solo support coordinators that were out there they started back when i started they grew up with the system they were able to to take on the new responsibilities and stuff as they came but for those that came on in the last you know 12 15 years where things really became so overly complicated with this system those guys, unbeknownst to them, unbeknown, they really didn't know. APD said, "Hey, listen, if you got a bachelor's degree, and you you know you have some experience working with you know not necessarily people with developmental disabilities, but in a related field, you can become a support coordinator. Come on, come join us." And so the a lot of solo people came about that way. Now, I I do feel some sort of responsibility, kind of, for where things are right now because. Um, you know, the state had been asking, our region had been asking us for years to expand. For years, they were asking us to, you know, please, we don't have any problems with your, your support coordinators. We don't get complaints from the families. The providers aren't calling us saying that they don't have their, you know, authorizations and whatever. Can you please? And I was like, this already, what we have right now with, with, you know, eight, nine support coordinators and several hundred clients is already like... I, I, I can't take on anymore with this and also have a family. I, yeah. I have to do that. Well, um, anyway, so it just, it just evolved like that. And then there, our former regional operating manager, a guy named Jeff Smith in the Suncoast region, had asked if I, I was able to do what's called statewide pre-service training. That was one of the trainings that the solo, that anybody doing support coordination, when you were coming in as a solo or whether you were coming in under an agency. You had to take a statewide pre-service training. I was a statewide pre-service trainer, but I only did it for my own agency. I did not train outside of my agency. I didn't 
I, I told them, I was like, you can't train somebody to do this job in five days. I said, I can go over like a lot of stuff. I said, but then they have to be guided and, and helped with that, you know, to implement that information that I just unloaded on them in five days. And I wasn't comfortable doing that. So anyway, he, he had asked me, uh, I don't know, several years ago, he said the other five days, so you take a pre-service training and then the next training that you would take is something at APD's office, a regional training. So he had asked if I would come in the last day of the regional training. Now this is the last day of training for these guys. They've taken a pre-service by a statewide trainer who all, all the statewide trainers were also uh, other support coordinators or like agencies and stuff. There wasn't somebody that was doing the statewide pre-service that wasn't doing our job. So they would take that pre-service training, get that exposure, that little bit of exposure, and then they would take a regional training. And that last day of the regional training was when they were able to basically submit their packet to Medicaid, which then took about nine months for it to be processed, for them to even get their number. So, but that last day, he asked me to come in at the region for the regional training. So he was like, do it, you know, just a couple of hours, talk to them about, you know, kind of what it's really like to do support coordination and be out there with the people and stuff. And I was like, he was like, we'll call it a mentoring session. I was like, uh, all right, that's, I'll do that. I'll come in and give him a little pep talk, you know, or, or just tell him what to expect. And, and when I got to that last, or, you know, I'm there on that, that day and the first time that I was there, I would say there was probably about, you know, 50, 50, 50 people in agencies, people that are going solo, you know, that were sitting in front of me. And I asked them basic questions about things that they should have already known at that they point. They didn't. They, some of them did. Some of them did because they were, you know, I, 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 some of them had, but nobody knew, not, not, there wasn't one person sitting in there that knew all of the answers to the questions that I had. Some of them, nobody knew any of the answers to. Some of them had an inkling of stuff, like, but it also depended on where they took their statewide pre-service training. Did they take it with this person and that's how they were exposed? I didn't know who they took it from before they got there, except what I knew the people at the region. And I was at the region now doing this last day asking these questions and they didn't know this basic information and I gave all of them you know like the solo I said the people with the agencies I said you guys are probably gonna be fine you're gonna have people watching over you supervising you guiding you I'm trusting that you guys are gonna be all right solos if you want here's my card and if there's if you have any questions you know if there's something you know give me give me a call I would get calls like nine months later about you know I, I don't know how to do this. I got this new case. Well, anyway, but by, by the second <laughs> the second time that I did the mentoring session, I was I was kind of discouraging them from going into the field. And then by the third time, I told them I was I was begging them. I was like, please, if you are if you are not with an agency in this room, do not go into this field. I was like, I, now I'm understanding why there's problems out there. Now I have finally realized mm -hmm. the people that are, are being told that you can do support coordination and this is the only amount of training that you've received you're and you're not even implementing it until nine months later after you get your Medicaid number. So whatever you learned these couple of you've weeks. You've forgotten. Exactly. 
I was like, please, please, please go work for an agency for at least a year. Get the hang of it and then go on your own. At least that way you'll you'll have know. some experience and familiarity. I had one guy call me. I had one guy. He took my card. He called me. He read me the riot act. How dare you discourage me from doing this? APD told me that if I did this, that I would be able to do that. I was like, I'm telling you right now, you can't. <laughs> I was like, trust me. I said, APD is not does not do what I do. I said, you, you don't understand this process. I said, you don't even know the basic home visit schedule. I want a support plan is due, service authorizations, home, home, home visits, quarterlies. I, I, I said, you don't have a concept of it. I said, you're going into something that you are, you're, you're flying blind. And I said, then they're going to give you cases. And these people think that you're an expert. <laughs> I said, they think that you know what yeah. you're doing. Yeah. You're the support coordinator. You're on this list. You must know what you're doing. And you don't. Well, anyhow. That's kind of what happened in the system. And then Senate Bill 82 came about and Senate Bill 82 said, you must uh, be under an agency now or a qualified organization is what they call it. But you can no longer be a solo support coordinator. And they gave everybody a year to kind of figure it out. And it was, um, you know, they had three options. One of them was to uh, start their own agency and you had to have a minimum of four support coordinators to call yourself an agency. The second option was to become employed by an existing agency. And your third option was to leave the field. That was it. So there, you know, of course that happened. And at that time, the solo support coordinators outnumbered agencies and they, you know, some, some of them have given it a go. They, they, they join together, together. Mm-hmm. but if you are used to working independently, how do you, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're putting yourself under an umbrella, but are you really working cooperatively as an agency? Are you working as a team or are you just functioning as four independent entities under an umbrella to, to call yourself an agency so you can keep your, your position. Mm-hmm. And, and that probably is, was fine for people that have been doing this for a long time. And they didn't need to work under an agency like ours. They were like, you know what? We, we've been told that we're doing it fine. We just need to join together. But then other people, uh, you know, needed to really be under, you know, some solid supervision. Right. Not somebody that never supervised anybody before. You know, independent providers were not supervising people and, and trying to show them the ropes. That's very, that's, that takes some doing. You don't mm-hmm. just do that mm-hmm. easily. We would have solos that would call us, call me, and say, hey, I, I need to find a place to, to work. How much are you paying? They just thought that we, we wanted Just bring them, them on. For, right. You know, for whatever. And I said, uh, I was like, I don't know where you saw that I was advertising. I said, but if I was interested in, in hiring you, would have reached out to you already. I'm, we're not just taking on anybody. We want certain people. We look for certain people. And they have to be people that want to commit to this population. I, I look for I look for, you know, particular personalities. I think people that want to form relationships with people and they also needed to want to work as a team. We do things in a particular way at our agency. And we did, we did actually take on a couple of solos that came with somebody that I had approached. There were four solos in particular that I wanted. And then all four of them are, are working for us uh, today. But one of them had a couple of people that wanted to come, you know, follow along. And we agreed. And uh, they were gone within, within a six-month period. The, the attitude was, I've been doing it like this. I don't want to do it your way. My way is fine. 
and this is how I want to do it. And it's, that's not how you function as an agency. You can't all do stuff differently, you know? So, so now you're encouraging people to uh, write to their legislators, visit their legislators, um, and try to get some more support. There needs to be, the, the, Senate, the Senate Bill 82 um, closed a couple of loopholes for support coordinators. And one of them was that you could not be a 1099 subcontractor anymore. And that was kind of a way of skirting some, you know, issues when it came to taxes. They required that everybody become an employee. And we had some employees, but we did have some that were 1099s too, because the rate was just so incredibly low. Well, that closed that loophole. This past year, we were able to draw down uh, what was called federal FMAP money for short, but it was federal uh, funding for expansion of services and retention of services for people, for agencies that serve Medicaid recipients. And that's what we do. Everybody on this program must have Medicaid. And we were able to draw down that money this year. So we were able to hire additional support coordinators and we also retained every one of our support coordinators, except one that just had decided to retire uh, from the field in general. But everybody else we've retained and we increased this year. That money is done uh, at the end of, of June. It, it runs out, there's a lot of strings attached to it. If we do not uh, get a rate increase this year, there is not gonna be any way for the agencies to be able to expand and take on any other, any other people. Our agency isn't going to. We're gonna just close down as far as like accepting referrals. How many people are on wait lists? So there's over 22,000 on the wait list. And there's uh, less than 36,000 on the waiver right now. But some of those, you know, those four packs, those entities of, of four solo support coordinators joining together, if one of them leaves, then they, their Done. qualified organization, ha well, the other three people have to figure something out. Are they gonna hire somebody? Are they gonna, you know, it's, and some of them are dissolving. And, you know, so those cases need to be picked up. And, you know, because some of them have been doing it for a long time. They're like, all right, we're at the end of our, you know, fine, I'll just retire at this point. Those people need to receive services, you know, that are attached to those support coordinators. The rate that we have is not possible to, uh, ex to expand at all, but to even, even maintain to, to maintain our people. I'm very concerned about that part of it. Uh, but you know, we're gonna, we'll, we'll see what happens. But anyway, I, I really do feel that if we do not have, um, if, if, if agencies like ours are not willing to expand any, any more than we already are right now, because we're not going to get a rate increase that, the people that are on the wait list, they're not going to have a support coordinator. And I guess I didn't say this in the beginning, but this, or maybe you did. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, but uh, support coordination is the one service you've got to have on this program. We're supposed to be. And without it, you can't get services yeah, for your child. Right, right, exactly. So you have, you're trying exactly. to maintain the 30 some thousand that we have and bring on some of the 20 some thousand that are on a waiting list. And yes. it all hinges on this funding that's coming up for renewal in June? Well, no, the, the FMAP money is not being renewed. It is done at this point. We, we received it for this year from July 1st through June 30th. We received, uh, we applied for this money from the federal government to be able to expand and retain our mm -hmm. services mm -hmm. since we serve Medicaid recipients. And that money is, is done like it is not going to be renewed so what do we do so the thing is to the legislature is who determines the rates 
They determine if there's going to be a rate increase, if there's going to be money allocated for a rate increase. Uh, Governor DeSantis, uh, their budgets were just, they just, or he just came out with his budget, but they can put a line item on there specifically for something like this. For Is there currently a line item? No, there There's isn't. There's nothing there. There isn't. And I just attended a meeting in Tallahassee yesterday um, with the House Appropriations Committee, and they're... You know, there were three of the House members that did ask about support coordination, and the representative that was there from APD um, really is responsible more for, for, for fiscal stuff, not the, the support coordination side of it, and was really not able to adequately answer those questions. So, the, but the bottom line is that support coordination is, you know, the rate, again, is from 1994. Senate Bill 82 made a big change. Um, if we, if the agencies are not able to expand uh, to take on additional support coordinators, then the clients are not going to be able to receive services under the waiver program. That's period. Yeah. So our our final plea as we wrap things up is to get out there and contact your legislators and ask for some funding. There's particular ones to contact. It's the legislators that are on the House Appropriations Committee and the Senate Appropriations Committees for Health and Human Services. I mean, so there's for Health and Human Services Appropriations Committees, um, what's the easiest way for people to find that information? Well, I, I mean, I have it, you know, I don't know how this goes out, but I have, um, you know, I have it all compiled in attachments that, you know, can, they're available to email. I don't know how, like, for them to just do it on their own. It's a lot of people to compile. I have compiled all of the information that they would need, all of their contact information. How would I get that? But mostly they need to get a hold of a um, their local legislators at the very least. At the very least, at the very least. So the, the in, yeah, I'm, I don't know where this is, you know, like how many people this is gonna go to, but there's a number of people that are on the Appropriations Committee on Health and Human Services for the Senate. And then there's the the healthcare appropriations committee on the house side, and each of them have you know this one has 16 members, I believe this one has 14 members. There's quite a few people that need to be contacted if they can at least start with their local. You know what? The probably the easiest ones to to tell you right now uh, to as far as the reach is concerned with your podcast would be to contact Senator. Gail Harrell's office. She is the chair of the Appropriations Committee on Health and Human Services this year for the Senate. And then uh, Representative Sam Garrison, Chair Garrison, is the uh, oversees the Healthcare Appropriations Committee. On hey, the House. at the very least, they can also flood the governor's office, right? That, that yes, yep, that's a possibility. Just let that <laughs> let him know too. Yep. Well, I thank you, Melissa, for providing us with some information. I, yeah. you know, ignorance is bliss, and people need to know, and we need to take care of our loved ones, and um, you know. I know it's tax dollars. I know there's a lot out there um, that needs to be funded, but this is important. It's a quality of life for a lot of individuals. It is. A lot of people with developmental disabilities, I don't think that people really realize how difficult their lives can be. And if they do have families, how difficult the family lives can be. And we, you know, like as support corners, we're supposed to really help kind of try to make the road a little bit easier 
you know, for them and at least be there for you guys. You know, if you, if there is something that we can assist you with, but it does boil down to being able to provide um, additional funding and services for our folks, uh, just all around. I think we can all do better personally, APD, um, the providers, I think we can work more collaboratively and cooperatively together and, um, and do what we need to do in order to be able to best look out for these guys because they really do need people to look out for them. They absolutely do. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. If we stand by, nothing will change. We all need to call our elected representatives and make it known that people with developmental differences and their families need our help and support. Thank you, Melissa, for helping to educate us today. Thanks for listening to It's Not Always Special, a podcast about everything relating to the special needs child. Don't forget to hit subscribe, but most importantly, share us with a friend, because when we know better, not only do we do better, but we are better.